Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. I'm Kimmy Dion, one of your hosts, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel Beatty-Riedel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kim. So I have so much news this week. I'm so excited to be talking with you. And some important news actually coming out of Benin, where I spent the last few weeks which is sadly another case of major democratic backsliding. But we have, we've, we've reported in the past on post-electoral violence following the legislative elections in April of 2019 that were due to reforms to the electoral code, the political party charter, and then ultimately the role of the Ministry of the Interior in certifying which parties were eligible to run in that election. And only two parties actually were allowed to participate which were both aligned with the president. So no opposition parties were eligible, and thus voter turnout was historically low. And now only presidential-affiliated parties, those two, are in the legislature. So this means major representation gaps, of course. Lots has been going on since then in reaction and in preparation for the municipal elections, which are coming down the pipeline in May of this year. So these municipal elections could offer an opportunity for some normalization with more participation and more multi-party competition, but they could pose another round of instability. And the news this week reported in Jeune Afrique is that 20 people were apparently apprehended recently under suspicion of participating in political destabilization plan, that is a coup, including 10 members of the military. They're now facing trial under a new court recently established which is a court for economic crimes and terrorism, which interestingly has no appeal process. So it's a court that's really being used to limit fundamental freedoms um, in the judicial process um, in Benin. Now the intention of the group apparently that was organizing this instability was to organize new elections. So it all really follows on the, the illegitimacy of these legislative elections in 2019. Now the stakes continue to rise in Benin as the electoral season heats up heading into presidential elections in 2021. We'll have to keep an eye on that. Now, there's some good news on something that we've been following for months now here at Ufahamu Africa. The last Ebola patient was discharged on Tuesday this week in Beni, Democratic Republic of Congo. The World Health Organization, the WHO, has not declared the outbreak over just yet. They typically will wait two full incubation periods, so 42 days in the case of Ebola, um, after the person tests negative a second time before declaring the end of the outbreak. So, so the end is in sight, um, though, though the outbreak is, is not technically over. As of the latest report issued on March 4th, the DRC outbreak had 3,444 total cases, of which 2,264 people died. And so in this uh, current period, the, re- the responders to the outbreak are monitoring the 1,169 survivors um, to see if they, they have any sort of relapses. Now, there were also casualties beyond the death toll caused by the Ebola virus. Since the outbreak was declared in August 2018, there were 420 attacks on health facilities in DRC, resulting in 11 deaths and 86 injuries among healthcare workers and patients. So this was one of the kind of uh, major differences in this Ebola outbreak compared to the West African Ebola outbreak from 2014 to 2016. And, and I think it's kind of interesting that this kind of end of Ebola in sight is happening at the same time that we have this other major epidemic happening in the world, coronavirus. So traveling in DRC and currently in Mbuji Mai, 
Tim Longman, a political scientist at Boston University, had shared on Twitter how the Ebola outbreak in uh, Democratic Republic of Congo has actually prepared the Congolese for coronavirus. So he talked about how uh, his own um, disembarkation from the plane, you know, how he was treated. It was very clear that people were aware of the need for really good hygiene and, and promoting good health. Absolutely, Kim. Now, that certainly leads us to an assessment of the coronavirus in Africa. Now, to date, 26 African nations have reported suspected coronavirus cases, according to the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, including, for example, Egypt and Algeria. The first confirmed case of coronavirus in sub-Saharan Africa has emerged in Nigeria, and that's obviously the continent's most populous country and biggest economy, which has sparked fears that the contagion could spread quickly and stymie business, as we've seen the kind of global havoc it can wreak on, on global trade, certainly. Now, Nigerian authorities reported that the case was via an Italian man who was receiving treatment now in, in a hospital in Lagos, which is itself a city of 21 million people. The man who is in his 30s and works for a Nigerian concrete company had traveled northwest this week to a factory in Ogun State before he sought help for a fever, health officials said. Now investigators are tracking down the other passengers who arrived on his Turkish Airlines flight from Milan, and the overarching goal for each patient is really contact tracing based on a very detailed itinerary which they have. So as the number of cases around the world continues to jump, Nigeria and others are both preparing and bracing for their responses. Right, and I was hearing uh, the chief of Nigeria Center for Disease Control talk about the important work being done through contact tracing um, of this uh, of this passenger and 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 the people he may have come into contact with. And I was reminded actually of Nigeria's experience with the Ebola outbreak and in 2014 to 2016 outbreak, right in West Africa. And I think that there's a lot of lessons we can learn for the current coronavirus outbreak from that previous fight against Ebola. And there was an op-ed in the Washington Post earlier this week by Blair Glencores of Accountability Lab that our listeners might be interested in. It's titled, What the Fight Against Ebola Can Teach Us About Beating the Coronavirus. In the op-ed, Blair Glencores discusses how Liberia finally overcame Ebola. He rightly pointed out how Liberia had coordinated action with other countries in the region to control population movements, rather than, of course, banning travel or imposing quarantines, which are rarely effective in response to virus outbreaks, and the power of communities mobilizing from the bottom up to carry out door-to-door monitoring and tracing of the virus. Now, the answer of how to end the epidemic relied not just on medical or technological breakthroughs, but on the everyday implementation, planning, and compliance necessary to responding to an epidemic. Now, my favorite part of Glencourse's op-ed is how it ended, and I'd like to read that for our It's helpful, I think, not just for thinking about the potential for coronavirus to affect African countries, but for all of us in the world who are trying to think about um, how to stop coronavirus. He wrote... Quote, washing our hands, stocking up on home supplies, and avoiding public gatherings will reduce our chances of spreading the sickness. But to truly overcome health emergencies like this now and in the future, we need to mobilize communities and collectively rebuild the relationship between citizens and people in power. End quote. I just can't emphasize this enough. The the way citizens protect themselves from getting disease is going to rely on really good public health messaging. And they're not going to believe those messages if 
Um, they're, they're living in, in states where they, they feel like they can't trust the government. And we can't predict what the ultimate toll of the coronavirus outbreak is going to be, though we are already witnessing in real time some immediate consequences, like the African airline industry projecting to have a $40 million loss because of the outbreak. And even in our own podcasting community, we were sad to learn that the first ever Africa podcast festival, which was scheduled for next week in Nairobi, has had to be canceled. We were really looking forward to learning from that event. Exactly, Kim. We hope that it will be rescheduled and we'll be able to share that with our listeners as with so many other elements that we're all kind of putting on hold in order to respond effectively and hopefully efficiently. And I, I want to thank you also for sharing these important lessons because absolutely these are global questions. Now, I have one last piece of interesting news this week, and it's non-coronavirus related, but back to the question of elections. And that is that President Ouattara in Cote d'Ivoire announced this week that he will not run for re-election in October of this year, ending speculation about his political future ahead of a vote that is really seen as a crucial test of political stability. Now, Ouattara had previously said that he would run if his two longtime rivals were candidates, thereby challenging the constitutional two-term limit, which he is wrapping up his second five-year term right now. As we know, the intense competition that will follow is not a guarantee of political stability either, and the announcement will likely lead to a severe succession battle within his own coalition. But overall, the news was met with applause, both inside Cote d'Ivoire and across the political spectrum of elites. With all of the news of democratic backsliding, seeing constitutional turnless upheld is, is certainly a good sign. And on that, check out Annie Meng's article in The Atlantic with Tim Horley and Myla Wierstig on new forms of autocracy. That's a global, a global comparative approach using legal measures to subvert constitutional constraints on their power. So that's particularly relevant for constitutional term limit subversion using legal measures. So really, Cote d'Ivoire has given us all something to celebrate for the moment. Thanks for sharing that, Rachel. I'll be curious to learn more in the coming months about the forces that shaped this outcome in Cote d'Ivoire. There's a new article out in the Journal of Southern African Studies by Sishua Sishua, who's at the University of Cape Town, that looks at the multi-stakeholder efforts that kept President Chiluba in Zambia from seeking a third term. So that's all for this week. We'll post links to what we've mentioned in this week's episode and bonus material on our website, ufahamuafrica.com. This week's conversation is with Nick Cheesman, Professor of Democracy and International Development at the University of Birmingham and formerly the Director of the African Studies Center at the University of Oxford. Nick also founded and co-edits democracyinafrica.org. He has held visiting professorships at Sciences Po, the University of Cape Town, and the Australian National University. His research in African politics has focused on democracy and elections. He is the author of multiple books, including his latest, Authoritarian Africa, co-authored with Jonathan Fisher. We talk about Authoritarian Africa and Nick's earlier books on elections and democratization. I spoke with Nick during the annual meeting of the African Studies Association in Boston in November 2019, and we thank the ASA for making this episode possible. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. I'm very excited to be here. Now, uh, Rachel and I would like to congratulate you on your new book with Jonathan Fisher, Authoritarian Africa, Repression, Resistance, and the Power of Ideas, just published by Oxford University Press. 
Now, this project explores the legacy of authoritarianism from colonial times through the contemporary period and looks at the variety of authoritarian regimes over that long period. And there certainly is a variety. Uh, military rule, personalist dictatorship, single party states. Why did this book need to be written and what do you hope readers will take away from it? That's a great question. I think part of the answer is personal. So I previously wrote a book called Democracy in Africa. So right. I kind of wanted to write a book called Authoritarianism in Africa. I felt like I kind of studied, as it were, like half of the history of the continent in a way. Right. And there was a half of the history that I hadn't studied, which was the less optimistic, less progressive part. Yeah. So part of it was for me trying to really round out my own understanding. Yeah. But then more perhaps importantly for listeners, I think the really important thing for us was that we got frustrated with the way that we saw authoritarianism being treated. Mm. It was either treated as a kind of way station on the way to democracy, you know, mm. sooner or later this regime is going to crumble and we'll have democracy, mm-hmm. or it was treated as something that was genuinely repressive, chaotic, the kind of last king of Scotland treatment of African authoritarianism. And the authoritarian regimes that we see aren't really like that. They're mm-hmm. often reasonably predictable. Um, they often contain elements of popular support and legitimacy mixed in with repression. And we wanted to explain that, right? Why does the NRM actually get support in some parts of the country? Why does Kagame get support from a significant number of Rwandans? And we wanted to explain that both by looking at what the services, what services those parties and leaders deliver, but also the ideas they use to legitimate themselves. And so one of the big arguments of the book that I think is really interesting is that ideas really matter. Mm. And I think in, in general in African studies, we sort of often get into this rut where we think there's no left-right ideological spectrum, mm-hmm. therefore politics isn't about manifestos, therefore policies don't matter, therefore Africa is this kind of you know, vacuum with no interesting political ideas and everything is about ethnicity. And actually what we wanted to argue in the book is the power of these ideas is immense. And they have power over 20, 30 years. They change the way people think about government. They change what people expect from government. Mm -hmm. And that we need to take these ideas seriously and not just dismiss them because they don't fit into the kind of ideological framework that we might expect coming, say, from Western Europe. Right. So what are some of the ideas? Like, what, what is it that Museveni and the NRM can say to Ugandans that resonates with some of them? Well, I think there's a set of things that we probably can identify over 30, 40 years that are reasonably consistent. Yeah. So the value of national unity, mm-hmm. the value of consensus, yeah. the idea that the forging of consensus is perhaps a more African way of doing decision-making than making people compete for power, yeah. which you know goes all the way back to Nyeri, and we have classic one-party states, but today Kagame is making the same argument in Rwanda, so this is a kind of 70-year sort of narrative and discourse. But that's not just a kind of legitimating discourse for authoritarianism. It's also a core component of the way that Leopold Senghor in Senegal brings out the idea of negritude. Mm. His understanding of negritude has a strong focus on the importance of communalism in African life. So these ideas have deep roots. They then get mingled with leaders and manipulated in different ways and they're put to work legitimating systems. Museveni also has others, of course. At one point in time, he was legitimating himself through development and being one of the developmental leaders and being one of Africa's new leaders who was going to transform the continent economically. Yeah. At the same time, you know, the really interesting way in which he legitimated the no-party, no-party no democracy, when effectively all political parties were officially banned, and he said that people should vote for their leaders on the basis of individual merit. Mm-hmm. Right? That, was the, that was the logic, not party label, but what is the individual 
merits of the MP. And interestingly, that argument that Museveni made to kind of legitimate effectively maintaining a system where parties couldn't operate so he could maintain control has created within a lot of Ugandans a real belief in individual merit. So now if the NRM tries to parachute unpopular candidates in, a lot of the thing you hear from local communities is no, individual merit, individual merit. When Museveni tries to push his son as the next president, what will people say? Individual merit. Yeah. So these ideas are actually important, and the way in which leaders bring in ideas about power and about legitimacy yeah. is really important. And so what we wanted to say in the book is, this isn't to say that these aren't nasty regimes. It's not to say that they don't also beat and torture people, etc. But right. if we don't take the ideas seriously, we don't understand where they get their durability from. Right, right. I'm curious to know, you know, how uh, how this is in how, in particular how this individual merit issue is going to play out in Uganda with as um, as Museveni tries to to bring his son forward. And and it's interesting, like when you're talking about this, I'm thinking. You know, um, and maybe this is because I live in America, where the leader can change the message and the idea, and rather quickly. Can author do authoritarians, um, in 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 your research, were they, you know, having a, a totally new message, right? And and can that new message or new idea can it also resonate um, with citizens? I think it can, and we see, you know, the emergence of different figures, you know, with, with new ideas. Perhaps over the last 10 years, we've seen the rise of some leaders pushing populist messages, yeah. etc. But I think that you're also constrained to an extent. Yeah. Um, I think pushing a message that doesn't be, isn't seen to have credibility or resonance mm -hmm. um, can be very unpopular. And you often see leaders starting a campaign and then quickly dropping it because they mm -hmm. realize that it doesn't actually um, capture the public imagination. So I think you can definitely push new ideas, but often you have to kind of frame those new ideas as being a response to or drawing on the past in interesting and more creative ways. Yeah. And that actually is quite a challenging process for a lot of leaders. Yeah. Um, so if you think, you know, Daniel Moy in Kenya, um, who's now, you know, we hear very unwell, um, the country's second president, you know, he framed initially his starting of his time in office as Nyeyo, you know, footsteps, following mm -hmm. in the footsteps of President Kenyatta. Mm -hmm. In reality, Moy wanted to do lots of things that were going to be quite radical and change the way that the country was run, both in terms of its ethnic base and in terms of its economic framework. Right. But he wanted to capture the legitimacy of the first founding father. Uh -huh. And so pitching himself as Nyeyo, following in the footsteps, enabled him to do that yeah. until later on he then developed that into a different way. So I think sometimes it's actually not as easy as we think it is for leaders to kind of reimagine the way that they want to govern. I mean, the other thing that we typically see, I think, for example, is leaders trying to couch themselves in some kind of traditional format. So, mm -hmm. you know, wearing perhaps certain um, items of clothing that draw on traditional leadership, getting blessings from religious or traditional figures, etc., kind of drawing on that spiritual and traditional legitimacy. Again, you know, that's an area where leaders can kind of manipulate what's there, but they can't usually kind of completely reinvent it or ignore it. Yeah. To completely ignore religion or traditional leadership would be quite dangerous because of the importance of these ideas. And so you see leaders dabbling with and trying to, um, trying to kind of uh, instrumentalize these ideas, but very rarely being able to completely revolutionize them very quickly. No, it's so funny when you bring that up, I just immediately picture Hastings Kamuzubanda going to rallies with his fly whisk. You know? that, exactly, yeah. that, exactly that example is in the book. Oh, God. 
<laughs> yeah, of course. Exactly. And is that, you know, but, you know, in, in Zaire, where we have the kind of, but the, the campaign to, you know, be authentic, the, the campaign of Africanization, yeah. but that also then leads to the, you know, the country being changed. But, but this, you know, idea constantly that leaders are appealing back to this historical kind of set of legitimacies, mm-hmm. legitimacy ideas that, you know, to some extent go back before colonial rule. Yeah. Um, that attempt to root themselves in that set of, you know, competing, so complementary kind of um, sets of ideas about power and where does legitimate power come from. And I think that's quite interesting for us. I mean, the other thing that you can see, even if you go down, you know, to the sub-national level and you talk about MPs or county governors or um, in somewhere like Kenya, you know, these leaders are also playing to some extent that same game. Mm. And they're trying to legitimate themselves. Often, to some extent, they're trying to look like a good ethnic patron, but they might also be trying to legitimate themselves by demonstrating that they can deliver development, that they are a good citizen, that they actually understand the nation, that they are not a tribalist, you know, and all of these kind of ideas about how do you legitimate yourself as a leader mm-hmm. play out also in the democratic space, of course. Interesting. But in the authoritarian space, I think it's quite important in some ways for leaders to be able to do this because effectively, if you can do this well, mm-hmm. you need to use less repression, right? Now, these are the strategies that if you manage them well, I mean, you don't have to beat up your own citizens. You don't have to have a massive police force that is incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. So they reduce all of the other costs of sustaining an authoritarian regime, and they make it much easier to be able to maintain that regime in the long term. And I think that's why, you know, if we think about the movement to multi-party politics in Africa and what happens in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, you know, some of the really important changes are the generational change, that the young people who are coming into politics don't remember the nationalist struggle. And so the appeal to nationalism and to unity and to discipline is no longer as powerful as it was in the 70s and 80s. So you can see that when that kind of, you know, ideological or legitimizing narrative of leaders ceases to be there, then it becomes much easier to mobilize support against them, and then they become much more weak and vulnerable to political change. Right, and that's when they have to use the substitute of repression. Mm -hmm. Now, you've established an important role in contributing to the state of African studies globally through your Mail and Guardian column, your blog, Democracy in Africa, through your public service as the founding editor of the Oxford Encyclopedia of African Politics, and as a former editor of the journal African Affairs, right, one of the leading uh, journals on African studies. And this is something that we at Ufahamu Africa take very seriously, and we, we truly value as engaged collaborative work. From these vantage points, what do you think are the promising new directions in African studies, and in, in, in particular in African politics? Where do you see genius, right? The, the, next, the next set of, of big ideas in the study of African politics emerging? Well, that's a really good question. Where are the really good, interesting new ideas? One of the things that I've seen at this conference and I've seen across Africa over the last few years is a growing kind of real interest in unpacking the question of how do you actually mobilize people. And I think we've often relied on this assumption that, well, you mobilize people ethnically, they're your citizens, and maybe you deliver some goods to them, maybe you do a bit of intimidation, you have your personal patronage networks, and people just somehow turn out to vote for you 90% of the time. And you get these incredible turnouts in your home areas. And what we actually now know 
is that actually getting 90% of people to turn out takes incredible hard work, takes yeah. logistics, takes networks. And even if these networks and these structures don't look like the kind of European mass political party of the 1940s, they actually are quite sophisticated. Um, and I think some of the really exciting work now is about what are the methods that you can actually use to get people to the polls. And so I saw a really great paper yesterday, which is basically doing an experimental design to look at the impact of a rally that Ryla Vadinga held in mm -hmm. a swing area. Mm -hmm. And what it actually found out was that Ryla's rally appears to have lost in support. Because in certain key communities within that um, part of Kenya, his rally actually leads to a significant decline in support for him. So then there's a really interesting question, right? Why, why would Raila holding a rally actually lead to a decline in support? Yeah. Is it that there's something about a leader from a different part of the country coming in that seemed to be illegitimate or problematic? Right. Does it generate a set of tensions around um, the different communities in that area that leads people to worry and that then leads to less public approval of him as a leader? Um, and we had this, then this fantastic conversation with these really great young scholars from across Africa and also from Europe and North America about, okay, what does that now mean yeah. for where candidates should hold rallies? How do yeah. candidates decide where to hold rallies? One of the things we know is that Africa has the highest level of rally attendance pretty much in the world. My former PhD student, Dan Paget has this great PhD showing us that actually, you know, more people go to rallies in Tanzania than almost anywhere else on the planet. I mean, a majority of citizens in some countries are going to a rally. If you compare that to the UK, it's less than 1%. So this is a very different form of political campaigning. Yeah. And yet we historically in African studies haven't really thought about how do you actually mobilize people. We haven't thought about you know door-to-door -door campaigning. We haven't really thought about the performance of the rally. We haven't thought about how parties use these strategies and choose between them. So my sense is there's a lot of really exciting young researchers who are going to be telling us a lot of stuff about political parties, campaigns, rallies, mobilization that we don't know. Yeah. And that that's also then going to intersect with really interesting work about the impact of new technology and social media. Right. And that's another area where obviously we're seeing an explosion of exciting new research right now. Yeah, and you're working on some of that research. So I know that with uh, Jamie Hitchin mm -hmm. and others, you've been working on social media and campaigns in Nigeria, for example. And, 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 and I have been following this really closely because I just find it so fascinating having seen. So when I was in Malawi for the elections in, this, mm. in, in 2019, and I'm on WhatsApp, and you know I have friends on Facebook and WhatsApp, and, and so I see lots Lots of different campaign materials, but then more so you see videos mm. and doctored videos and things that people are forwarding as if they are news, mm. but they're fake news, right? And and I'm just curious, you know, I, I just I find it so compelling and so interesting, and I feel like we know so little about it. Mm. So I don't know if maybe you can share something from that research that you've been doing about WhatsApp and Facebook and misinformation and disinformation campaigns um, in, in Nigeria and elsewhere? Okay, I think it is, it's really, really fascinating. And here's maybe three key things that we found. The first is that you know, the idea that things like WhatsApp work organically and that somehow the message just gets out there and that you can stick a really good meme out there and it just flows doesn't really turn out to be true. And actually what we found in Nigeria is the political parties, the main political party, the ruling coalition, the main, main opposition grouping, invested a tremendous amount of money and effort 
in basically creating hierarchical structures that enabled them to create WhatsApp groups that went all the way from the national level to the local government area. Mm. But actually to do that, they had to make a significant investment. Mm. This isn't something that they could organically do. Mm-hmm. Second, related to that, getting that message out there socially at the local level often relies on pre-existing institutions. Yeah. Again, you can't send a message to thousands of people just by assuming that your supporters will send it to their friends. What's much more effective is if you can get into a local church group, mm-hmm. a local student alumni association from the university, existing institutions, mm. and use the WhatsApp groups that have been set up by members of those institutions, that's when you start to reach thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. So actually, to some extent, WhatsApp is parasitic on existing traditional institutions. It does not replace those institutions. And there was a story recently about both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party in the UK struggling to use WhatsApp as a form of social mobilisation. And I think partly the reason is that they're expecting WhatsApp to do the work. And the answer is actually you have to set up the institutions and then WhatsApp helps you and facilitates it. So that's the sort of first set of things we found out about, that actually existing organisations really matter and you have to plan how to use WhatsApp really effectively. The second thing was going back to your stories about you know misinformation. Most people told us that what was really much more impactful than text was image. Yes. Right? That the image or the video was much more powerful in terms of changing perceptions yeah. than receiving a text. But that the most effective strategy of all was to use something that was true but in the past. Right? So I want to say that you went to the mosque and you said something which you didn't say. I don't completely fabricate this. I used the picture of you actually going to the mosque last year when you went for a completely different meeting and purpose. Mm -hmm. But I then doctor it and I put in a different caption about this was yesterday and here's what you said. Mm. And it's that combination of an image that people kind of know to be true or to be familiar, something that really did happen with the new message that makes people believe it. So often what we're seeing is a kind of splicing of two yeah. different stories to slightly distort and change reality in a relatively small way but with a profoundly different interpretation yeah. and that's what people are buying into because you know one of the things that annoys me is the idea that there are people out there in Africa who aren't savvy and you just believe anything they get on WhatsApp right mm-hmm. and when we do surveys we find out that most people think that a lot of the stuff they get on WhatsApp is fake mm-hmm. so we need to spend a lot more time not assuming that people believe this stuff but looking at when do they believe it yeah So then this is the third thing that I think is really important. People in Nigeria often said to us, look, the reason why we believe a lot of the fake news is because a lot of the official news is fake. fake. Right? Real talk, yes. So if you've got a government that makes stuff up, if you've got a government that, you know, the police regularly put out news stories which turn out not to have been the case, that the government denies corruption but it happened. There was a story at one point that the reason that the president was not in the president's office was not that he was unwell, but that rats had eaten the furniture. This was an official story that was put out, it seems. And so people said to us, you know, when when we then get a story that seems a bit dubious, but it's about a political leader, part of us is thinking, well, it could be true. Because, and so, you know, the most notorious story in the last election in Nigeria was that President Buhari was not, in fact, President Buhari. That he died. He was a fake. He had died. There was an imposter. An imposter from Sudan had been found and put in his place to enable the elites around him to govern in his absence. 
It sounds crazy, right? But it, it was... only sounds a little bit crazy because if you think about Nigerian political history and what had happened with Omar Umar Yaradwa, right, and how he became very exactly. ill, I mean, it's not surprising that Nigerians might not believe that exactly. their president is, is actually alive and well and yeah. able to run. Exactly, exactly. This is it. So people were saying to us, look, this isn't so outrageous. Yeah. This happened in the past. So yeah. this rumor partly had legs because people thought it was fun. Mm -hmm. It played with people's sense of humor, yeah. but also because it resonated with a historical experience that we were told there was a president who was going to recover and who never recovered. And we know he died before they told us that he was dead. Yes. So why would it not be the case with Bahari? Yeah. So one of the things that's really important that comes out of that is that, you know, governments themselves have to take significant responsibility for the spread of fake news. Not necessarily when they're deliberately spreading it, but if they undermine public confidence in the official record, mm -hmm. then that opens up the world of news to new stories and rumors that are much more likely to be believed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the really dangerous things in many of the countries in Africa that we might be talking about if we're talking about you know, being worried about elections that are coming up that could be controversial, countries like Ethiopia, etc., which are going to have elections in the next couple of years that could be really controversial. I think the risk in a lot of those places is that people don't necessarily believe in the official record, mm -hmm. and that legitimates and makes it easier to spread fake news that can then, you know, encourage people to believe in things that, that are very problematic. I mean, one of the most problematic stories in Nigeria was not the Bahari story, which is kind of funny, but a lot of the local candidates told us that one of the ways in which fake news was used around the elections was by people who would create rumors that there was violence near polling stations that they knew opposition supporters were likely to go to. Mm -hmm. And so by sending out a message on WhatsApp that there was conflict or violence in a localized way around polling stations for the rival candidate, you depress turnout. Yeah. And because the official news sources aren't that good and because it's not always that easy to know where the violence is within the town, right. that that would actually encourage people to stay at home. Yeah. And I think that kind of relatively clever use of rumors and of course, you know, one of the good things about WhatsApp that a lot of candidates told us is, well, you know, in, back in the day, the government would have basically put out fake news and we'd have had no comeback, right? We couldn't get access to the radio, we couldn't get access to the newspaper. WhatsApp, they put out a fake message, we put out a correction within 24 hours. The problem on election day is 24 hours is after the polls close and exactly. it's too late. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things that really worries me about the elections that are coming up. Yeah. You know, that ability to use WhatsApp to create almost instant rumors that it then there isn't quite enough time on polling day to undo the damage that they've caused. So, Nick, all of these questions that you've been answering, you are talking about elections in Africa or um, public confidence in African countries and public confidence in governments uh, in, in African states. But a lot of the things that you've brought up, they're making me think of my own country, mm. right? So I, I'm curious to know your thoughts on, you know, having studied democracy and authoritarianism, like, you know, what are your thoughts on how what you've learned in African politics can apply elsewhere, whether in, uh, in North America, in, 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 in the Americas generally, right, as we see what's happening in Latin America, mm. um, but, but also in Europe, right, in your, in your own country, right? We have, you know, there are changes happening in political institutions in the West, and I'm just curious, like, is there something that people who study politics in the West can learn from African politics that, that not just that they can learn because I, I, that's something that, that's true you know generally but something that they should learn from African politics 
I think very much. I mean, one of the things that we did when myself and Brian wrote How to Rig an Election was that we didn't want it to be a book about Africa. We wanted yeah. to demonstrate that the forms of electoral manipulation that we were talking about were universal. Yeah. They were expressed in different ways in different countries, but actually you could see them pretty much everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, we've studied gerrymandering and ways to get around and fight gerrymandering in places like Zimbabwe, but the home of gerrymandering is, of course, the United States. Right, that's where the term um, comes from. Where the term comes from. And just to give an example, that you know we were just talking about I think that point about what's really dangerous is when governments themselves undermine confidence in the official record yeah I think what Trump has done to public confidence in government information and official information in the US is particularly good yeah uh, a, a particularly good example of exactly that process yeah and I think you know learning uh, and understanding how those processes can undermine confidence in the rule of law in democratic systems in Africa can then help us to think about, ah, well, there's a really dangerous precedent being set here in the United States. As well. We haven't necessarily yet seen the full manifestation of that, no. but there are potential implications. And I think one of the things that we need to think about is that this is not just about how do people think about a political candidate or an impeachment process or whatever is in the news right now. It's also about do people believe the government when it comes to something like an immunization campaign? Right, no, that's the thing when you don't believe in governments, and we see this, right, in the public health epidemics mm -hmm. that are emerging, you know, on the continent, but not just on the continent, right? Like, in my own home state of California, you know, parents are not immunizing their children mm. against measles, and we're having measles outbreaks, mm. you know, and, and that's because people don't believe, right, that these vaccinations are safe. Exactly. And and why is it that they don't believe that, right? Same thing, you know, for, for Ebola, the Ebola outbreak in Congo, one of the reasons why it's been so difficult to combat it is not just the insecurity in Eastern Congo, which has been an important factor, but it's the fact that, you know, people won't believe public health campaigns from a government that has been absent for decades. Absolutely, or might be deeply suspicious that public health issues are being manipulated to extend the control of the state, exactly. which might be unwanted because exactly. the state seemed to be predatory. I think that's absolutely right. And I think this is where, in a sense, the genuinely insidious nature of fake news needs to be understood in a much more fundamental way. That it isn't just about, you know, legitimating this or that particularly bad political strategy. It's about eroding the capacity of government to actually persuade people to do things that might be in their interests. Yeah. And of course, when it comes to authoritarian states, we're often quite blasé about that because we think, well, it's an illegitimate authoritarian state. It's good that people don't respect the state. It's good that they might resist. But when we then transplant that to a democratic state, we see actually this is fundamental to the ability of a democratic state to do things like collect taxation, yeah. right, and to get people immunized and to protect citizens. Mm -hmm. And so I think that sort of gradual erosion of confidence in what you're told by authority figures. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, as a Democrat, you know, as I say, we might, you know, em embrace that a little bit because we want people to be challenging and disputing authority. But on the other hand, perhaps we're starting to realize that a degree of believing what you're told by government is really important to maintain political stability and enable the government to get stuff done. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, you know, that does come out of cases like Nigeria you know, that is a really important lesson for the United States is that it's really hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah. Right? Once you've lost that public trust, when people do then start to second guess the word of the government on a daily basis, building that credibility back up takes generations. It can't just be done in two years. Mm -hmm. You have to almost re-educate people and re-socialize people into mm -hmm. a different way of thinking about government. And that process is a very long one. So yeah. you have to be really careful yeah. when you destroy this kind of public trust. 
you've been working on many great projects. So one you had just mentioned, but I wanted to ask you about was uh, how to rig an election, mm -hmm. um, but also uh, a, another another great project, uh, coalitional presidentialism in comparative perspective with Tim Power and Paul Chasty, which is really an interesting look at power sharing tactics and strategies around the world in presidential systems. Now that these are out and the Oxford Encyclopedia project is nearly completed, what new research are you taking up? Oh, that's a great question. I feel like I actually want to sleep for a bit. Um, <laughs> you have your fallow period. I want to not, not write anything for a while. I feel like a lot of people will be quite pleased to see no more books or articles from me for a couple of years. So, so that, that's partly serious. I haven't yeah. really had time to read. I, when I was editor of African Affairs, you know, I read everything that ever came for African Affairs, and I felt that, although it's only one journal, yeah. enough different stuff came in that I felt really across the discipline. Recently, doing so much research, you know, I'm now head of research at my school for University of Birmingham, I just don't really have the time to read. Yeah. So I'd like to create a bit of time to think and actually say something a bit more distinctive and creative next, rather mm -hmm. than kind of running through the motions of another project. Yeah. The longer-term goal... I'll tell you, and then it'll go out on the podcast, and someone will do it before I get there, and then my, <laughs> my entire research future will be destroyed by you. But the longer-term goal I would really love to do, I was talking about this to people yesterday, is a kind of project on the history of political ideas in Africa. I think we have lots of good books on the history of democracy, authoritarianism, political institutions, mm -hmm. colonial legacies. We don't really have one that does what I was talking about earlier, which is to take political ideas in Africa really seriously, yeah. to take African socialism and the legacy of African socialism not just for the way that states were built, but also for the way that people think about the state really yeah. seriously. Yeah. Um, so I would really love to go back to the kind of 30s or 40s and start writing, you know, from then on, from the Francophone, Anglophone, Lusophone traditions, mm -hmm. what were the key ideas that animated political leaders? What were yeah. the ideas that resonated on the ground? Yeah. How did they shift over time? How did they actually create different outcomes? Yeah. Some of that's really hard, right? Because proving that ideas make a difference is really difficult. It is. Especially historically. But I think something that could really take us through, you know, why did the ideas that we get in the 80s come up? What of those ideas are actually reflecting things that were there in the 40s, 50s? What's new? Yeah. How does that get recycled into the 90s? Yeah. You know, so as we were talking about before, you can kind of show that this idea of consensus and unity is there in Negritude and then it comes again, you know, 20 years later and then it's there again in Kagami and it will be there again in 20 years' time. Somebody else yeah. will be harnessing those ideas. Yeah. But that kind of almost intellectual history yeah. I think we haven't written and I think because we haven't written it or some people have written it to be fair and there's some great books out there I shouldn't, shouldn't suggest it hasn't been done at all but because we've tended to overlook that I think we've undermined to some extent popular understandings of how sophisticated and interesting African political ideas are yeah. and you know people often think about this as being a continent, as we were talking about, that revolves around ethnicity. Right. But there are very few founding leaders who wrote as interesting and sophisticated political texts as people like Kenyatta, we're mm -hmm. facing Mount Kenya, uh, with Nyeri on unity and freedom. Um, you know, actually, we often sort of forget quite how interesting and intellectual those uh, sets of leaders were. And I think doing real justice to that would be a really wonderful project. Yeah, and I think having a compendium, right, of like not just looking at one particular leader, because we have seen some of those where someone will, you know, look at Lumumba's ideas or look mm. at Amilcar Cabral's ideas, exactly. but someone who can like bring those together, and especially because many of those leaders at independence 
were together, right, at various conferences mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and congresses, right, where they were, they were sharing their ideas. Exactly. So, so I was once interviewing Vernon Wanga. Vernon Wanga is a foreign minister in Zambia under many Zambian presidents. And I asked him, why did the Zambian one-party state look so much like the Tanzanian one? And he laughed and he said, because when Kaunda wanted to set up a one-party state in Zambia, President Kaunda told me to get on a plane and ask Nyeri how to do it. Yeah. Right. So we went to Tanzania and we had meetings. Mm -hmm. And Nyeri said, if you want to do a one-party state and make it look good, have a national consensus meeting, have a commission, get the commission to write a report, and then use that as a way of legitimating your one-party state because it comes out of this national dialogue. So I want to be able to show the way that those ideas traverse different countries. Yeah. Um, but also, of course, beyond that, I mean, there's been some fascinating research done um, by people like Anne Heffernan and others, which is showing you know, the way in which African nationalist ideals shape black civil rights movements in the United States, yeah. how those ideas then go back and reshape African nationalism. Yeah. Like that, those global currents of ideas, I think right. you could show as well. So yeah. it would be both showing kind of how ideas on the continent develop, but then also what's shaping them from outside. Right. You know, the role of China now in reshaping people's thinking about the kind of political and economic systems you might need to be successful, mm -hmm. and the new possibilities that that's generated, and the new language that that's given rise to. Mm -hmm. So I think trying to do justice to that would be a really great project. It would probably be a kind of rest of your career project. But I think it would be really nice to actually find a way of being able just to sit down and not run around and do tons and tons of field work Right. But to be able to sit down and say, okay, let's read about the histories of these ideas, these right. thinkers, as you say, we've got many great biographies, yeah. um, but to put them into that context where you could give it to a student and they could understand how these ideas have shifted over time without yeah. getting completely lost in the complexity, yeah. that would be a project that would excite me. Well, before we go, we have to ask you the question we ask all of our guests. Is there anything you've read recently that you might recommend to our listeners? That is a good question. Have I read anything recently? I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure I've read anything um, in the last 20 years. That I, <laughs> Have I read? No, I've got to recommend something good, haven't I? Let me think about this for a second. Yeah. Have I read something? Well, your book is a really brilliant book. I did read your book recently, actually. Thank you. Um, on your brilliant Democracy in Africa blog about it. But I probably shouldn't <laughs> say your book because I'll sound sycophantic and also people know enough about your book, I guess, already. <laughs> you know what, actually, I was reading recently? It was really fascinating to me is the bi autobiography of one of the people who was involved in the Salem Witch Trials. Yeah. And he writes a biography, and he's one of the people who's kind of involved in the prosecution. And the thing I really love about it is because, you know, you, go, you teach your students about Africa, and sometimes you teach your students about something like witchcraft or about traditional beliefs about, you know, the invisible realm and the ways in which uh, people in the invisible realm can affect the real world. And you have those conversations, and students find this kind of so exotic and so strange. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you go back and you read these kind of biographies or older biographies of the figures who were involved in things like the same witch trials, you find all very, very similar sets of understandings about what's going on and very similar processes. And often, really interestingly, exactly the same outcomes. So, yeah. the same outcome in terms of who is often attacked when witchcraft accusations are made vulnerable people, women older women, yeah. people who are seen to have somehow become vulnerable yeah. and don't necessarily have authority anymore. So I think that was one of the most interesting things I've read recently. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think about, so in Malawi, there's, you know, there are a lot of people who have a variety of syncretic beliefs mm. and, you know, witchcraft being among them. And what's interesting is that so many people talk about witchcraft accusations of elderly women. Mm. 
or of women scorned or, you know, in the time that I did a lot of my field work, you know, which is probably, you know, as the HIV epidemic was, was on the decline, but it's still quite high, there were lots of witchcraft accusations of children. Hmm. And what's interesting is it was almost always a child that was being fostered, hmm. right? So if you think about vulnerable populations, right, it was, you know, here is a child whose um, mother or father or both have died, and so they're, you know, they're, they're an orphan, and they're living with an auntie or, mm. or some other extended family, and something, you know, some illness befalls someone else in the household. They, can, they, they point to this, well, this, this child is a witch. Mm. And there was something about, you know, what I imagine, and, and there's not a lot of empirical evidence of this, but just from my own, you know, witnessing of these events, is like, there's a lot of accusations of children as witches in the time of AIDS when children, so many children in Malawi are being fostered mm. by extended family. Mm. And, and I can imagine it's that's not um, peculiar mm. to Malawi that there's something about, right, when when times are difficult, when there's famine, mm. you know, when there's... When Social there's, dislocation. Yeah, absolutely. shortages. You know, you think, you know, what, what do you do um, to, to deal with that? And the way in which societies also then break out of that is really interesting. I mean... In the case of kind of Salem and, and those which accusations, it sort of seems that you know two or three things happened at the same time. There was a slight burning itself out of the process and the hysteria, but there was also the situation that once you've actually um, killed so many people, you cease to have vulnerable people, and the people you have to accuse left next are less vulnerable. Yes, and they're in a stronger position to fight back, and yes. that potentially then creates a backlash. And then, so, you know, it's really interesting thinking about what is it that, you know, that gets a society out of that his moment of hysteria. And I think, you know, going back to your point about the children, one of the things you often realize is that actually this is being driven by, you know, power and yeah. power relations and power inequalities. Yeah. Um, and also potentially in some cases it can also potentially, so in some cases I think it, it's, it's a sort of exploitative replication of power. In other cases it can be, of course, a critique of power and Peter Kishira's work on kind of zombie witchcraft and the idea that people might be accused of being witches because essentially they're seen to have let down their family and their nouveau riche. Yep. And so the kind of, it's almost like witchcraft and zombie accusations become a metaphor. Yeah. That, you know, you've been captured by capitalism, you go off to the capital city, you've turned your back on us, so you're kind of now a zombie. And, you know, but how do we actually get leverage over you? Well, the only way we've got leverage over you is perhaps to make the witchcraft accusation, which keeps you in check. And yeah. so you've got these petrified urbanites who go home to do their duty right. because they're worried about being accused of being witches yeah. if they don't, you know, fulfill um, those requirements. So witchcraft kind of can both be that sort of slight weapon of the weak, yeah. but at the same time it can be manipulated and most of the time it's directed against vulnerable people. So there's that really interesting tension there between, you know, and I, when I was writing Democracy in Africa I spent a long time thinking about you know, can we see certain kinds of witchcraft accusations as an inherent critique of economic inequality and political exploitation yeah. and ultimately I think because they so often end up being you know against women or children you ultimately you can't mm -hmm. um, because that sort of undermines any kind of democratic or progressive content but it is interesting that you know the people in power don't necessarily get to control the way that those stories and rumors work out and that they can actually turn out to bite them as much as being deployed by them and I think that's really interesting as well. well thank you so much been a pleasure.
That's all for this week. Find us online and tell us what you're reading, writing, and learning about the continent. Don't forget to follow and share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Ufahamu Africa. You can listen to Ufahamu Africa on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or on our website, ufahamuafrica.com. Ufahamu Africa is a podcast created by Kimmy Dion and supported with research assistance at Cornell University and the University of California, Riverside. Simone Perez, Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University Class of 2022, is Ufahamu Africa's Research and Production Fellow. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening, and until next week, Safari Salama!